the year is 1862. The American Civil War is forever changing the country as it ravages hundreds of thousands of lives and the fabric of society itself. You've just been brought on as a nurse to help the war effort. You've been told that your job is to take care of the wounded men as they are brought to the hospital where you're stationed. But as you'll soon discover, there is much more to the job than just tending to injuries. You don't know it yet as you lay in your cot, thoughts racing, but soon you'll find that to succeed in your position as a professional female nurse, one of the first of your kind in the country, you'll have to become something of a human Swiss army knife. You'll tend to broken hearts as well as broken limbs, offer therapeutic and even spiritual guidance, all while drawing the gaze of male suspicion and prejudice. You know what they're thinking. What is she doing here? How are a bunch of women gonna handle this? And you know, you're starting to wonder the same thing. What are you doing here? Sure, the pay is good, really good, considering there are very few other options for generating an income save for marriage. But you don't have much medical training. In fact, most of the women at the hospital don't. You've never seen a surgery. You're starting to get scared. Then a fellow nurse bursts into your sleeping quarters stirring you and your new colleagues. They're coming, she says. You sit up, the panic in your gut. The nurse tells you that wounded soldiers ravaged by the Battle of Fredericksburg are on their way. It's time to get to work. As you race to get ready, tie your hair back, dress, gulp down some food, you have no idea that you're part of a momentous first generation of medical workers, of history makers poised at the frontier of a profession which today has a powerful legacy. You're scared, but there's something else too. Maybe for the first time in your life, you feel needed by your country. You feel essential. And so begins the professionalization of the American nurse. I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Join me as we explore jobs and industries throughout history and around the world. We'll walk in the shoes of everyday workers, artisans, scientists, teachers, and tradespeople, tracking down how economic systems shape and reshape societies and are shaped by them. What was a typical day for a seamstress during the French Revolution? a hunter-gatherer with maybe a nasty case of myopia, a merchant on the Silk Road. What did they worry about? What skills did they need? What trusty tools? What were they paid and how were they paid? And how did they fit into society at large? On this episode of Working Over Time, I'm joined by my producer, Aidan La Liberty, and we're gonna take a look at nursing in the American Civil War. We're delighted to have as our first guest, Dr. Kenya Davis-Hayes. She's a professor of U.S. history at California Baptist University, where she teaches U.S. history from the colonial period through the Cold War. Her research explores the imaging of race and its impact on popular culture, and she has lectured on this topic and other topics to do with the politics of American popular culture and race at universities worldwide. She's currently working on a book about the history of Black women on television during the Civil Rights era. 
Kenya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, it's it's really exciting to have you with us. Um, as you know, we're we're launching this new podcast and your expertise on the topic of the American Civil War nurse and the professionalization of nursing is going to be our key topic today. So exciting. Yeah, we are excited for you. <laughs> and, you know, just in the spirit of, of being all about working over time and, and all the ways one can interpret that, I, I would love it if you could share with our listeners and with me something about your own experience working over time something unexpected, funny, or just particularly memorable that you've experienced on the job? Oh my goodness. Don't we all work over time sooner or later? Yeah. Uh, I think this so often working in academia, or at least some of my students seem to think that we have a, a very smooth sailing sort of life. I had a student once come to me and say that he finally decided what he wanted to do professionally. He wanted to be a professor. Uh, because all we do, we go to the lecture office, we pick up our lectures, <laughs> we deliver them, and then we go home. And it's the said, magic no, inbox where your lectures appear, ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I was fascinated. I did not know that there were lecture Oompa on campus just churning oh, baby, lectures and, out. And a chocolate lake. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, and you have some rocks too, right? Oh, oh, that's all. We just sit by the pool um, and drink refreshments. It's wonderful. Um, but no, of course, um, as you know, being an academic is, while I can't say grueling, you're not digging ditches, um, there are moments in which we have to scout out our research, you know, go into archives. And I always joke, being an American historian, that while my Europeanist friends and colleagues were in Paris and they're going to London and you know they're having these really great sort of jaunts across Europe, or even my colleagues are Africanists or, or Asian historians, I find my place myself in far-flung places like Kansas, um, you know, Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> exotic. Um, <and> exotic. <laughs> is, and people are deeply envious, of course, of course, of course. There is a certain um, exoticism to the everyday. And, I, you know, I um, imagine that in some respects you might think about the kind of history you do as social history, right? It's bottom sure. up, not top down. So, right. I mean, I, I don't know. I have to say sometimes those archival uh, journeys that don't sound so exciting at the outset have been so for me. So I hope that's true for you as well. So let's just dive right in, Kenya. What, what would it have been like for a nurse working in the Civil War? You know, let's let's just start with, uh, honestly, the most basic fundamentals. So what's, what's her day start out like? What's she thinking about? What's she, what's she worried about for the day ahead? In anticipation for this podcast, I have spent a good amount of time going through primary sources and, and writings oh, and diaries and, and things, yeah, that I've found online, things that I've um, assigned in the past. And it ended up being serialized, but I thought that what was probably one of the most vivid um, was Louisa May Alcott. We forget that she was a Civil War nurse. We do forget. Was... Some of us didn't know. Yes. Really? Yes, yes, women. yes. Yes, and she will serialize um, some of her experiences, and those are known as her hospital sketches. 
there was even a, a sort of fictionalized character that represented her, but it was very close to her diary, if I understand correctly, which her name was Tribulation Periwinkle, which is really great. Oh, um, and, <laughs> um, and she talks about sort of the day in the life, and she arrives um, at the Union Hotel Hospital where she's assigned, and she is there to, you know, assist in the caring of Union soldiers. And what's so very interesting when she talks about, you know, one of her first days, she's in the bed and before dawn, her roommate pops up. Um, basically, there's a, there's a clanging and she's like, you know, she's sort of startled awake. What happened? Well, what's happening? And her roommate says, oh, well, they're coming. And they uh, were the, the, the soldiers who had survived the Battle of, of Fredericksburg. And she's told, she's wow. like, you basically have 15 minutes. Wow. And she's like, okay, 15 minutes to get dressed, <laughs> to get dressed, to do your hair and to eat. And if you don't do one of those things properly, then that's just you for the rest of the day, basically. Um, oh, and, and she said that as this woman is explaining this to her, she is dressed and she has put her hair in a perfect bun and she's out the door, whereas Alcott is basically still in the bed. Like, oh. <laughs> wow. And I suppose showing up for work in your pajamas was not a thing during yes, this time yes. period in America. <laughs> not acceptable in the 1860s. <laughs> um, and, and so she, you know, she gets and in a flash, this hospital is filled with men with a variety of injuries. Um, you know, some of them have, of course, minor injuries. Some of them are on the brink of death. And the first thing that she and the other women of this, of this hospital, these nurses, who are both, um, with, she would, they would consider, quote, Protestant nurses, as well as Catholic nurses, um, and then there are also three Black women who are in this hospital as well. And they go about basically um, subdividing these men based on the severity of their injuries. So, so like triage, yeah. like what we think of as an ER room triage today? Exactly. Oh, yes. Okay. So, you know, who goes where? And what is, like I said, what is the severity? Can they, if they're if they're dead, sometimes by the time they arrive there, by the time the nurses get to them, they may have passed. And so then they have to summon men to come in and carry them out. That kind of, I hate to say this sounds gruesome, but that opens up space. Yeah, um, yeah right. For them to do their nursing work. Um, and, and so that's a first. She, she writes about when she first experienced that, that, you know, if even that was a lot of work. Sometimes these women are assisting these men very physically. It's physical work, of course. Um, at some oh, point, yeah. she gets very ex exhausted mid-morning at this point, and she decides to go take a break. I got the impression she was hiding in the linen room. Who wouldn't? Wow. That's right. <laughs> Just take a breather. Her, her boss, who would be called the matron, the hospital matron, found her, didn't blink, was like, okay, you had your breather. Let's go. Yeah, maybe she's seen and this before. You know, you're I'm kind of sure. It's pretty <laughs> shell shocking. You know, it's better than all the other women who, not all the other, but there's so many women who say that they fainted or they ran or what have you. So I think the linen closet is a good, Substitute. mild, <laughs> exactly. You can hold your head high yeah. to your descendants and say, I only hid. In the in the yeah, she, she did not leave the premises. <laughs> yeah, at least I exactly. <laughs> But then she's brought out and she's given this giant bar of soap 
and she's tasked to wash numbers of men. That's her. Okay, so she's got a no. bar of soap. Yes, that, and, that uh, is her medical equipment. Well, and that's actually encouraging. I mean, at least they understood sure. that that was an important part of trying to um, help those who could be helped. But I, I suppose the bar of soap only went so far, depending on how bad the injury was. The bar of soap was a way to clean away the muck and the mud and the blood to see what oh. the actual wound was. See how bad it really was. Gotcha. Because these are men who are trudging through these backcountry roads post-battle. It's in some open field somewhere in Virginia, right? They're all filthy. Right. So, so you're not sure what's what. And she was going back to this, this idea of modesty of the 19th century. She is not so much appalled by their wounds. She's appalled that she's a woman would be asked to bathe strangers. Right, naked naked bodies of, of men who are not related to her. That, that Now that must have been, uh, let's be honest, in some respects, as shocking to these women. As the injuries. I, yes, huh. I would agree with that, most definitely. And she starts to go down the line. She just picks some poor man who turns out to be an Irish immigrant. Gives him a scrub. <laughs> yeah, basically. And he's embarrassed. But yeah, I'm just, so it is, I would imagine that it's as embarrassing on both sides. These men are yeah. also really not used to being seen unclothed by strange women. Right. And I, I think that the idea of being fully clothed, this is a bit of a sidebar, but I teach that there are numbers of women who fight in the Civil War as men. And, and students say, well, how in the world did that happen? And it's like, well, because 19th century Americans don't really take their clothes off very often. Right. Just for people, you know, for themselves, maybe, maybe close, close family members, but you would go and sign up and, you know, sort of like, are you a person in pants? Yes, uh, you are a man. <laughs> And so off you signed up. Nope. Yeah, no, 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 no. You would not ask someone to disrobe. That would be. It's ex exactly. She ends up saying that she would have rather to be asked to dance a jig on top of a stove oh. for these men. Yeah. Than well, to wash. But them. very real, right? Uh, I mean, it yeah. must have been quite um, stressful. Uh, sort of yes. Real deep seated tension and um uncertainty right <laughs> and, and wow. a challenge to their modesty i mean just to everything they still wearing four-length yeah. skirts right in a military hospital like and everything they've ever not. been told is you know you 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 don't you don't look at naked men not unless it's, it's your husband exactly. i mean that that's really quite astonishing to think about it's exactly and so she takes as far as soap she she put she picks some poor soul who turns out to be an Irish immigrant. He's embarrassed more because he's right. dirty. And it, it was almost sort of like he'd wish that he'd cleaned himself up oh. to be cleaned oh. up by oh. her. And so, but she, she, she goes at the task and she takes you know his shirt off and she washes him down and she washes his hair. He does sort of draw a line on with her to wash his feet. He thinks, that he says he's not sure which is worse, the boots or the foot itself. Oh. Um, and she assures him that it's it's fine. Um, wow, she's crying on the inside. 
Yes. Totally fine. I would have thought that by the time she gets down to the feet, she's feeling relieved. She's past the scary part. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I didn't get the impression that she cared about the feet. He cared right. about the feet. And as she goes on to wash these men, and it's sort of as assembly line, so she washes, and then someone comes behind her, another nurse, to dry and clothe them. So it's like a full wow. washing clothes change. So she leaves them veritably, you know, nude, more or less. And wet. And and wet. And then she How moves vulnerable. on to, yes. And she becomes very fascinated by each of them. Some of them are embarrassed. Some of them are not. She says a couple of them are so grateful that they lay their heads on her shoulder. Yeah, it's so really amazing to think about, Yeah, and right? they're just so grateful. And she said it's so tender. Um, at some point, a young man asked if she could take a little extra time and bring her, bring him a looking glass. He wanted to see oh. his scar. He'd been shot in the face. Oh. And she, she takes time. She's, I get the impression she's not really supposed to, but she runs off and she gets a mirror and she kind of washes up his wound and he's looking and he says, you know, I was a good looking man before this. Mm. Oh, it just, and, wow, that's really, that That just brings to, to the forefront uh, this sort of crazy interplay of, of all of these kind of mores and expectations and senses of propriety and, and it's just, you know, kind of all falls away in the crisis of war, doesn't it? And everybody it sort does. of their and most fundamental human self on both sure. sides. He asked her the most specific question, which when I read this, I laughed out loud, but gratefully she wrote that she laughed inwardly. He said, do you think that Josephine Skinner is still going to like me now? We'll never know who Josephine Skinner is. But I love that so much. And she tells him that, you know, Josephine Skinner is just going to care for you and be so proud of you. And he's like, oh, okay. And she's like, I hope that this is a decent person because I really talked her up. Like she, she's, wow. I don't know who that is, but she better be decent. Cause I have, I am her hype woman right now and she better like do what she needs to do. So she goes through, she, she washes these men. Um, then there's a nurse behind her who's clothing these men. And then they put them into beds. They're assigned a bed. They load them up. Those who can get out of bed to look at themselves, they do. You know, those who need to be lifted, they do that. They tuck them all in. And there's a bit of a breather, but not really, because then a bell rings and the bell is, it's time to eat. And she is fascinated by these nurses who come in with coffee and trays and heaps of food. And men that she thought were on their absolute last leg. They perk right up at lunch. <laughs> yeah. Amazing how that works. Some things never change. She thought they were passing any second, but then the lunch bell rang and they sat up and they had just enough. I was going to die, but you didn't tell me. But you brought in the soup, so I'm good. (laughs) So those who could feed themselves, fed themselves, those who couldn't did their best and they will go and assist those who need help. And then they have to kind of clean a number of them up again. Mm because apparently this is not at all a very refined affair. So, you know, men who've lost a limb and they might be, you know, trying to feed themselves. And sometimes she said it's as much as in their hair and their beards as it is in them. And 
months and then there's another wash time. Mm. Um, they do that. And then the nurses get to the quiet task of basically going man to man, gathering up their things. They, they would hold their personal items for a bit mm. in like storage. And so trinkets and watches and pictures, you know, I think they got to keep a couple of little things, but they didn't want their beds to be littered with a lot of stuff. Um, so they would organize their things and they would tag it and put them in their room and then they would come back and they would do letter writing. They would read to some of these men. They would sing to some of these men who were declining, um, just talk to them. Um, there was nothing medical about this day really. And she said that typically things like major surgeries were for the next day. And so this was just a moment to get them cleaned put them in a bed, settle them in, settle them down. And that would be the rest of the day until the night nurses would arrive and she would say goodnight. And they would anticipate um, who would live through the night and who would not. And the night nurses would be there to care for them overnight. And that was wow. Yeah. And, and did these nurses stay on site? In yes. Pieces? I just was sort of wondering whether they, you know, sort were, of had a, a dormitory of some kind in the, in the building where the they, they lived on site. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Um, at times there were in some hospitals complaints that nurses would steal furniture to put into their dormitories to make them a little bit more comfortable. So like every now and again, like some surgeon's good chair would go missing. <laughs> And they were <laughs> in the nurse's ward. It was that woman again. <laughs> it was that woman. There you go. <laughs> Must be the ladies. <laughs> right. And they would go look. And sure enough, these women would be reclining in these overstuffed chairs that these surgeons would have in their offices or whatever. And so there's a lot of shuffling of furniture in odd hours, which, you know what? I feel like these women deserve it. Yeah, I was good. I, I'm kind of thinking all's fair in love and war. And. <laughs> on the front lines themselves in a way that, um, you know, I, I think we're getting a little bit of a sense of the, the stoicism and, and fortitude it would require. Um, but, you know, otherwise, what, what kind of personality would it take to do this job well? As I was looking through the writings of these women and really feeling close to these women, by, you know, as I was working up to this moment, I feel that all of these women were abnormally independent, mm -hmm. um, even for their day. So as we're studying Civil War era nurses, there are also so many other writings of women who are like, there's no way that I would ever do anything like that. And so you have women, these women are breaking the mold in a variety of ways. Um, and for a variety of reasons. Louisa May Alcott, we forget that before she was a world-renowned author, she was a working-class woman who did a lot of different, really menial jobs to assist her family. Mm -hmm. So you have women on that side, nurses, who will join this because this is really one of the best-paid jobs a woman can have. Ah, oh, interesting. In okay. So they were paid well. 
they, for, I hate to say this, they were paid well for women. That counts. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and I, I actually would love to hear about how these nurses fared in society, both during sure. the war when they were working as nurses and, and really sort of even afterwards, um, obviously, as you point out, there's um, a financial incentive to do yes. this work. Um, it's one of the better paid options available for women at the time. But how were these women viewed? Were they viewed as, um, well, you describe them as perhaps abnormally independent, which is a very positive spin. What would your sure. average man in this society have thought about them and other women? Women, other women <laughs> chose not to follow this route of adventure. When the U.S. begins to open nursing to women, and we have to remember that before the Civil War, in both the U.S. and, as I was reading, in England as well, nursing was a masculine profession. And it was a masculine profession of working-class men it was a space that needed sort of stronger men to lift bodies, wash bodies for very little pay. The, the turning point was the Crimean War, right? And this is sort of where we see Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale. Right, who yeah. is ultimately sent historically to Turkey. Um, and she will take 20 women with her um, and they will be basically compelled to assist. But the reason why this really matters is that it takes a long time in England, in the US, for, if we're talking about men right now, for men in the medical profession to embrace women nurses. The issue is, is that with the rise of the Civil War, more and more men in the Union, I'm gonna talk about the Union first, and I'll come back to the Confederacy, are basically fighting in battles and even military brass is not super satisfied that the bulk of nurses before women are other injured soldiers. And so they're like, you know, either these men probably need to recuperate or they're well enough to go back to war. And so they will have to hear the calls of women, women like Dorothea Dix, women like Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who's the nation's first woman oh, wow. okay. um, say, we can do this. Florence Nightingale did this. British women are doing this. We can do this as well. But these men don't always love this. Um, a woman in the Confederacy um, by the name of Pember was her last name. When she arrived as a head nurse to oversee women, the doctors referred to her as that woman. That woman. Well, but and, and so it's so interesting, um, to, right. if I'm understanding correctly, to imagine that in, in some respects, these male doctors would prefer what they're used to, which is fellow men who may be wounded soldiers themselves, but they're taking care of the nursing. So there's something kind of fundamentally threatening about women coming in, even healthy, able-bodied women. And what do you think that's about? I mean, does that come down to, to just fundamental gender issues in this day and age? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear you unpick that a little bit for us. Yes and no. I think that it is sort of two-tiered. 
On one hand, there was a concern that nursing, while it sort of factors into what women had always done, which is to care for mm-hmm. folks, right? right? At, at the same time, it was too much care. It was it was very sort of crass form of care, right? You have surgeries, you have bleeding, you have gangrene, you have incredible diseases, you have, you know, violence. These are predominantly very violent injuries. Right. So this is really different and, from a woman at home caring for her right. ill family member. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so men don't think that this is an appropriate space for women. And if we're honest, a number of women don't think that this is an appropriate space for women. So what nurses have to do is shift the narrative. And the narrative is that innate feminine, this sort of innate feminine caring expression that quote unquote all women have. By their nature, right? (laughs) By their nature, right? born this way that woman deep down inside because she's so caring also strangely makes women very competent in this field in a way that men are not and so at the end of the day they're like uh we're not comfortable with it but because and and women nurses will push this but because they're so naturally caring Mm -hmm. Then we will let them do that. And then I'm fascinated that um, Confederate women will just be candid and start to do the math. Um, one woman wrote, quote, when males have charge, the mortality averages 10%. Where females manage, it is only 5%. And Florence Nightingale wrote about this too. They're saying, yes, we might be quote unquote inferior women, but A, we care, B, we're cleaner. And if we need somebody to pick up a body, we'll call some dude. He'll help us in a moment and they can move along. I mean, these women are keeping track. And we're like, well, when we came, happy all were dead. I mean, that's just, you know, I mean, what we're stating. But now we came and most of you are surviving. Let's just work from there. Um, and, and so, but going back to your wondering about this gender gendered, they're pushing this. And that's another reason why people like dicks don't want um, army nurses to be too attractive. They don't want at any moment, any sort of suspicion that a woman of questionable character is in this field. Right. I mean, well, could there be married. some idea that, yeah, they're out looking for a mate? <laughs> they're like, right. Their mate. Exactly. So, so tell, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about who these nurses were. Were they married women? Were they single women? What? What kind of, you know, various um, slices of society did they represent in terms of class? And you mentioned some some free African-American women. I'd love to hear a bit more about who the typical sure. person was. So as I was looking at this, I was fascinated that there was a ranking of nurses. This was not a democratic space, right? So, <laughs> so you had nurse matrons. Um, and they would sort of arrive in this hotel, I mean, excuse me, in this hospital, and they would oversee all. And they tended to be widows, or a word we don't use very often, spinsters. Uh, right? What were they? Yes. Because so, what they were twenty and not married yet. <laughs> right. Like they tended to be like thirty and up, yeah, thirty-five and up. So yeah. not quite. Um, That's not yeah. Quite. My gracious. Um, and, and so 
those women tended to come from well-off families. Um, but at some point in their own lives, they had not fully fulfilled their full expectation as traditional women. So those are sort of the, the matrons and even assistant matrons who were their assistants. Um, and then we would see sort of like ward matrons. These would be working class women, predominantly white. Um, and, and these were the women who actually oversaw the cleanliness of smaller wards. They administered medicine, they brought bandages and things like that. Um, and then sort of below them, we see both in the Union and the Confederacy legions of working class white women, yes, but numbers of free black women, okay. many of whom had been formerly enslaved um, and they were emancipated as a result of the war. So as the Union Army rose across the South, um, of course, we see um, people being emancipated. As oh, so sort of as the, so it's sort of a moving wave of yes. women participating. Fascinating. And, and so it was a way for them to participate in the war effort, just as white women would want to do, definitely. It was also a way for them to make a little bit of money. Um, and so you could have these women, some of whom might have started out in a refugee camp um, wow. for free people, being able to transition into these hospitals. You were asking, though, also if these people were married. And some of them were. In the field, scholars found that some soldiers came to war with their wives. And so literally to the front line with their wives. Yeah. These wow. these women will accompany these men. Um, and they will serve as more battlefield nurses, like right behind the line. So those women were married. Um, and after you were asking about African-American nurses, a woman by the name of Susie King Taylor, um, she traveled with her husband, who was a part of the 33rd United States Colored Troops um, of South Carolina Volunteers. And she talked about how she assisted this all-Black regiment as a nurse, as her husband fought this war. So if you were in a hospital, it was likely you were single. If you were in the field, there was a good solid chance you could have been married. And so something you said there really um, struck me, Kenya. Um, we have these examples of, of freed Black women serving as nurses. Um, were white nurses able to assist with, a, as you called it, a colored regimen and vice versa? Or was that a kind of a segregated affair? You know, it wasn't. And in the heat of post-battle, if we're looking at it from a nursing perspective, um, Black and white nurses cared for Black and white men. And um, I was reading a text about nurses in um, even the Confederacy. The Confederacy called for enslaved women by the droves to, wow. to care for Confederate soldiers. And brace yourself, they paid their masters for their their efforts oh my goodness so yes they did not actually earn their freedom by participating in the war effort in these cases but their masters no. would benefit and then they were expected depending on how the war went up went <laughs> to go back afterwards 
<laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. Wow, yeah, so they, of course, by the so... war, they're emancipated. But yeah, they, well, but they didn't know at the time, now did they? What would happen? Sure, right. That's it's, pretty intense. Exactly. Wow. Whereas in the Union, Black nurses would write about discrimination within hospitals in terms of from their white women superiors, but also be very fascinated that those same nurses could be very kind and caring with the colored troops because there was this overwhelming care for soldiers. These women wrote so often like, my day is bad, but it will never be bad, as bad as that of a soldier. And so there was, an, a, I would say it was an equity of care in a lot of these union hospitals, regardless of color of the men, but there was not an equity of respect amongst the nurses. Wow. That is a really fascinating um, example of how gender relations are so much more complicated than we yeah. even realize on the surface of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think in a prior conversation, Kenya, you, you said something which I, I thought was very striking that, you know, war turns gender on its head. Um, yes. And that certainly seems to have been um, an element in the evolution of nursing as a profession in the American Civil War. But I, I think it's striking too, to think about uh, the degree to which obviously um, race and class were also to some um, extent overturned with, with all of this as well. You know, I don't think that race and class was overturned. I think that in, I think that it was deepened as these women write about, you know, from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, like I said, there, there seemed to be a very, very clear hierarchy of who was who and what was what. Um, and that was both in the Union and, of course, in the Confederacy. And what I think is interesting when we're talking about class is so often when we think about the Old South, we think about slave owners and slaves, right? But we talk a lot less about the reality of the class-based hierarchy amongst white Southerners. Right. And so you have these working class white women working in hospitals under elite Southern white women, and they battle all the time. And <laughs> so you have elite Confederate women saying like at no point should we discontinue being quote unquote ladies. But then on sort of the off hours, they write like, and I ran across my nurses and they're all sitting around, they're smoking, oh. drinking whiskey. Wow. Boy, and, and then, women, I guess women uh, can be very mean, just like mean girls of all ages. Um, but it is, it is actually, uh, it's fascinating um, to think about that dichotomy between sort of public persona and what these elite white women are projecting in terms of right? care. Well, and that, and that makes me wonder, so during the Civil War, gender is overturned entirely, race and class, not so much certainly right. at least as we see in the example of these women serving as nurses to both the Union and the Confederate soldiers. So what happened to these women after the war? 
you know, what, what, I, you know, the cat's out of the bag a little bit in these women. Yes, they're always reminded of the natural order of things, the patriarchy, right? As I, as I think in the, in the 19th century South, the idea of the natural social order with white men at sure. the top, right? And everybody, women included, below them. You know, how, how do, you, do you have any sense of how some of these women adapted? Did, did some of them continue to enjoy this newfound freedom and autonomy in this sort of professional zone or you know, what happened right. to their opportunities after? After a number of them will stay in nursing, but a number of them will marry and return back to their traditional expectations. And what I found is that that is across the board, black and white, working class, you know, older women in terms of these sort of matrons will go on maybe to a private life. Mm -hmm. We see some of these women transitioning into uh, the suffrage movement, which I thought oh, was okay. really interesting that we do see um, numbers of these women become suffragists, but also scholars find that numbers of them are not necessarily. Um, the what they saw is that these women have found a voice for themselves. Even if it is not a political voice, it is a social and communal voice. Right, something so outside they, the home. Right. So if they stay in nursing, then they go into public health and they push for, you know, public sanitation, let's say on an urban level or childhood health. Uh, many of them will go on to work for organizations that will campaign for veterans care post civil yeah, well, and so it sounds in a way like for some women, at least this opportunity to take unprecedented roles for people of their gender in society, sure. you know, serving as a as a, a medical supporting actress um, really did kind of change them forever. And after the war, they might have continued as a nurse or, you know, clearly something was awakened in at least some of them. Right. And, and they right. were. And it's just interesting that at least some of them uh, managed to do that. I just, I wonder if you have any sense of how many people, uh, unfortunately, because of their circumstances, you know, as perhaps a working class single woman of, of no means, were uh, kind of shut back into their box after, after the war ended. I don't know if it was so much shut back into their box. I just think that they had to find other ways to support themselves. And so that brings us to this question about, I think, the advent of, of the professionalization of nursing, right, as opposed mm -hmm. to this kind of emergency mobilization during war. Um, I don't know what sense you've gotten from your research or whether you just have any hunch, but, um, you know, how, how much was the professionalization of nursing after the war a continuum where people just kind of said, okay, you know, the battles are over, but uh, this is this is something that I'm good at, that I, I enjoy, I can make some money doing it, I'm gonna go find a hospital to work at, you know, and, and to right. what extent that was, you know, made easy for them as women. It seems to me that by the turn of the 20th century, there are established schools for nursing. Okay. And that is a real profession, yes. So after the Civil War, nursing is feminine. Mm -hmm. There is very little recruitment of poor men 
to enter into nursing. So this is a moment by the time we get into the Spanish-American War, we are definitely seeing, okay. um, and I know nothing about that war in terms of women nursing perspective, I have not studied that, but I do know that if you've gone to a hospital by the 1890s, it would have been staffed by numbers of these sort of, you know, these, these nurses and these beautiful white dresses and, you know, they right. were all very trained and refined and, and what have you, and nursing will be you and so that's itself. really different, it sounds like, from sort of the beginnings of nursing in the Civil War, as you were talking about how it, it often would have been wounded male soldiers. Yes. Um, so that, that sort of, they must have realized that, well, they're women, but um, they're able-bodied and, and they're trained and, and they're, not, um, they're not hobbling around themselves. So that, that's a huge step forward in reception, isn't it? <laughs> And at the turn of the 20th century post-Civil War, there is a rise of university-educated women, just in general. Um, right before the Civil War, we have the rise of what are known as normal schools, which is now considered teacher education. Mm. Um, those will be fully in universities by the end of the Civil War. We'll have nursing programs. We'll see women begin to break into things like law, medicine as actual MDs, though very small numbers, they do exist. We do see the professionalization of women. And the Civil War pushed women in general to enter into the economy in a way that they had not in the past. And so that just continues on in some way post-Civil War. A little less so, but it is still there. Yeah. Well, so I can't help but... <laughs> think about what we're looking at in the present day. We happen to be recording this podcast in, in the midst of the coronavirus situation and sure. people around the world are in lockdown and, and we're all rightfully applauding the healthcare givers and, and the nurses, particularly who are ministering to the sick. Um, and I guess I, I just would love to consider a little bit about how the place of nurses, professional nurses in the economy and in society has remained the same since the Civil War and changed in important ways. You know, I've been thinking about this. Like I said, I feel rather close to these women. I respect, I respect them a great deal. I don't like them all. I'm not going to. Well, I don't think you have to like all your subjects. I don't. I'm not, no. I'm not like you're doing your job right. You're checking your, <laughs> your perceptions and your opinions at the door. What I'm finding and what I'm feeling now is that we're at this turning point that nurses are essential. In the same way, during the Civil War, society sort of said, oh, my gracious. We really need these women. <laughs> yeah. And before the Civil War, the, that realization was rooted in the fact that women really did not do that professionally. Whereas I think now we've taken for granted for so long that women do do that professionally, that we have stopped valuing them because they're just so ubiquitous. You go to the doctor, you likely right. have right. a young woman who's a nurse. And like so many other feminine professions, you know, like teaching, daycare work, is that nursing became a feminized profession, which meant that it was not valued 
they've been not paid as, as much, they're not necessarily getting the same protections or respect that let's say an MD would get. And, and so I feel, I'm, I feel that we're at this moment as we come out of this, and that's all said and done, quote unquote, whatever that'll be, that people will revisit nursing as essential and really think about, well, gosh, what does essential mean? Right. And how do we honor and value people who are essential and be honest that maybe we didn't value them in that way because they were women and we're continually inheriting this sort of cultural dynamic of downplaying the efforts of women. Yeah, this sort of gender, but yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that you hit it on the head, frankly. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard not to see it, at least in some respects, in terms of it having been viewed as women's work, even though as we're really discovering in this, this dive into the history of the professionalization of nursing, that it really is not all that long that nursing has been viewed as a feminized profession. Right. I, I remember even watching as a kid, and this might be a little off the beaten track, but as even as a little kid, as you know, 15, 20 years ago, just like watching TV, seeing a TV show or a movie, and there's a reference to a male nurse, and it was sort of like the, the joke. Oh, yeah. yeah, it became like the joke, and it's like at the in, as like a you know an impressionable five year old, it's like that type of stuff becomes embedded, and then like you look at it later on down the line, it's like okay, you look at these women in the Civil War, and it's like, oh, that's just a woman's work. Well, let's take a look at what that work is. It's badass, all the things that they're yeah. doing. So it's like, yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's very, it's insidious, I guess, these these sort of preconceived notions. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's very compelling. Well, and that is the power of culture. And, and, you know, it is laid bare at moments like we're going through at, at this time with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, just the, all of these things that one takes for granted that are either no longer available or don't work as smoothly as we're used to, you kind of see the substructure. And it, it's really, um, it's a time when I think as uh, a global community of humans, we can do well to take note and really think about what we, what we believe we know and assume right. to be the way things are just because they've always been that way. Generally, not the case. <laughs> so. <laughs> and that tends to take so long. And I think that so often it takes a crisis to even try to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're and too busy otherwise. You know, there's too much noise and we just do what we do. As I was reading about nurses, I just ran across sort of the parallel of uh, the value of women in the war effort in general is that American society, at least across the Union, began to deeply value women as farmers. And oh, oh, so it's like, kind of oh. like a Rosie the Riveter moment, but in the agricultural era. Yeah. And that like, is oh fascinating. Goodness. Oh, tell us, about that. Out there. tell us about that. <laughs> and so I think that you're right. It's just these times of stress, we reevaluate our professional expectations. We reevaluate who we expect to do what and in what way. Um, we are fascinated by who emerges as competent, da, 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 da. Um, and, and, and then ask ourselves, like, gosh, why were we surprised by that in the first place? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think that that's sort of what social and you know, global crises does for work at the end of the day, is challenges our, our notions that we might not even be sure why we hold them in the first place. 
Kenya, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, this has been a, a really um, eye-opening conversation about the origins of a profession that, um, you know, today has come to the forefront in, in a way that uh, we might not have been able to predict just a few months ago. Um, and it is just a, a fascinating example of how crises show us things that were under our nose the whole time as being really important and, sure. and unexamined, frankly. Thank you so this much. Is, this has absolutely been my honor. I had a great time with all of you. Oh, likewise. <laughs>